Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, as I mentioned, we're in a series in Revelation. We're uh, trying to balance a couple of things. Uh, Number one, we began a long time ago by saying there are trees and branches. There are trunks and branches, I should say. Uh, Trunks are solid. They're the core foundations of our faith, the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Father, uh, were accepted and received by faith in Christ. Those are trunks. There's also branches to the trees, things that are less clear, things that where there's different opinions, different perspectives, and certainly that's the case with the book of Revelation. There are trunks of truth, and then there are branches where there might be shades or differences of perspectives or opinions. We're also trying to bounce the forest and trees. Uh, We're trying to see the big picture of Revelation, and yet also trying to dive in somewhat to some of the detail there. And really, you could spend literally years and years and years studying Revelation. Many have. And so we're gleaning from that, uh, but we are also trying to move forward, move through it in a way that's, you know, at a reasonable pace, and we should be done at the end of April. It'll carry us through the Easter season. One of the distinctive marks that you find in Revelation that we're finding right now in today's text is that there's often this sense of counterfeiting. Uh, We said that the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is often counterfeited, especially in these chapters in Revelation, by the dragon, by the beast, and by the false prophet. And so the work of the Father... God the Father, who is the originator of the plan of redemption, is counterfeited by the work of the dragon, who counterfeits God and is the initiator of evil and wickedness in our world. The work of the beast, to whom the dragon gives power to execute his plan, is counterfeited, or the work of Christ that executes God's plan, I've lost my train of thought there, that executes God's plan is counterfeited by the work of the beast who executes the plan of the dragon. The work of the Holy Spirit who points people toward the person of Jesus and his work is counterfeited by the false prophet or the second beast who points people to the first beast and points to the propaganda and belief system that the first beast wants us to believe about the person of Satan. And so there's counterfeiting happening all the time in Revelation, specifically with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, counterfeited by dragon, beast, and false prophet. Let me just highlight a couple things quickly before we jump into this morning. Uh, Vern Poitras points this out about the, the counterfeit of the beast and how he counterfeits the person of Christ, Christ being the executor of God's plan of redemption and the beast being the executor of the dragon's plan of evil and wickedness. The beast is an image of Satan who brought him forth, just as Christ is the exact image of God sent by the Father. The beast has ten crowns, while Christ has many crowns. The beast has blasphemous names written on him, while Christ has his worthy name. The dragon has given the beast power and great authority, just as the Father has given Christ power and authority. The beast has a healed fatal wound, counterfeiting Christ's resurrection. Worship is directed to the dragon and to the beast, just as Christians worship both the Father and the Son. The beast attracts the worship of the whole world, just as Christ is to be worshipped universally. The beast utters blasphemous Blasphemies of God, Christ utters praises of God. The beast makes war against the saints while Christ makes war against the beast. And so there's this counterfeiting idea that is pervasive in Revelation, especially the chapters that we're presently in. I'm going to ask Dennis to come and read Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Uh, Remember last week we looked at the first beast. Again, the first beast is uh, sort of typifies and is symbolic of world empires to whom the dragon empowers so that he can influence the world. Then Revelation 13, 11 through 18 introduces us to a second beast, later called later in Revelation as the false prophet. The false prophet's job is to sort of 
point people to the power of the first beast. So listen as uh, Dennis reads Revelation 13, uh, 11 to 18. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Nothing there to talk about, right? When people think of Revelation, 666 never comes up. Uh, Just the tame text. We'll move on. Dennis, you want to come up and read Revelation? Just kidding. Um, So let's dive in. We'll kind of, again, kind of bounce forest and trees. So let's get on. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 13. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. Notice the first one comes out of the sea. This one comes out of the earth. Remember earlier that an angel of God, possibly even Christ, stands with one foot on the earth and one foot in the sea. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We said that pictured ultimate authority over both, over the whole world. Uh, This seems to picture one beast comes out of the earth, the other out of the sea. Satan himself has influence as well in every nook and cranny of life. There's no square inch of this territory of the planet that Satan does not have some kind of influence and does not desire to impact. By the way, the whole idea of of monsters coming out of the earth or sea, that harkens back to Job, won't take the time to look there, but that itself has some biblical framework and context uh, of where sort of the beastly characters come from. It had two horns like a lamb. Notice here the counterfeit going on. has two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. See the counterfeiting that's gone. It looks like a lamb. Notice as two horns, possibly a reference to even counterfeiting the earlier two witnesses. Remember a couple of chapters ago, I think it was chapter 11, we saw two witnesses kind of flowing from Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, ultimately giving expression to Jesus' church as being his witnesses in the world. So there seems to be a counterfeiting going on of the witness of God in the world. Satan counterfeits that. And so there's two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Notice from day one all the way in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent speaks deception. Greg Beale says this, whereas the first speaks loudly and defiantly against God. The second beast makes the first beast claim sound plausible and persuasive. Though the beast professes to represent the truth and appears harmless as a lamb, his inner satanic nature is revealed through his speaking with the authority of the dragon. Again, the first beast is sort of the hardcore governmental powers of our world. The second beast, the false prophet, points people to the believability, the plausibility, helping them to buy into the systems of success that our world, our governments, our empires offer. Verse 12, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Just a little side here. Listen, friends. The question is not if you are a worshiper. Every single human being on planet Earth is a worshiper. And so the question of Scripture from cover to cover is not, 
Are you a worshiper? It's not whether or not you're a worshiper. It's not if you worship. The question of Scripture is always, 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 what do you worship? The most unbelieving person, the most atheistic person, is still by nature a worshiper. Every single being on planet Earth is a worshiper. The question is not if, the question is who. There is something that you give ultimate allegiance to. There is something that you orient your life around. There is something that you give your devotion to. That is what you worship. In fact, I would say, what kind of makes your life break down what sort of gets you amped up is often a great pointer to that which you worship. The question is not if you worship, the question is who. And so in this case, Revelation points out that there are many who worship some of the false systems of our world. We're going to give some specifics of it later on. Continuing with verse 13, And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Again, this seems to reference back to Elijah and Moses earlier as the foundation of the two witnesses. Elijah is specifically calling down fire. Also remember in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5, the two witnesses themselves, fire was coming out of their mouths. And that fire indicated the speaking of God's word that brings the conviction of sin. And so once again, the false prophet is is speaking words, trying to convince people to worship someone other than the person of God. The second beast is a counterfeit of the church and the spirit who empowers and dwells it. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. There again, friends, that's the work of Satan. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Scripture, what is Satan up to? He's deceiving. He's saying, hath God said? Should you really be following? Does following Jesus, is that really the truthful way to live? Is that really the way to orient and direct your life? Should that really be the foundation of your life? After all, look at all of the things you're possibly missing out on. Isn't obedience to God something that's a little bit boring, something that's a little bit blasé, something that will leave you half full at the end of life? That's the message of the beast deceiving you that life can be found elsewhere other than in obedience and devotion and praise and honor of God. That's the work of the beast. And so the work of the serpent continues just like it was all the way back in the Garden of Eden with deception. Verse 14, it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword yet lived. That goes back to the passage in Daniel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image. Has everyone bowed down to worship the image? In Revelation Chapter 1 through 3, remember when we looked at the letters to the churches, we we said that in every single town of the churches mentioned, there was some kind of temple related to emperor worship. This kind of seems to be exactly what's happening here. There's this challenge of the emperor of Rome declaring that others, people of the land, should worship him. And again, that idea comes from directly the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image and asks people to worship him. We also talked a little bit about the idea of a fake resurrection. Again, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We won't go into that too deeply here, except to say that it seems to have sort of, again, ongoing sort of expression in reality, that as soon as one kingdom of this world dies and fades away, it's not like everything is cleaned up and everything is wonderful. No, there's, there's always something else brewing. Rome itself was one of the most long-standing empires. Some people thought it would never pass away. Babylon, Medes and Persians, Assyria, all of those before before even Rome, there was a sense of we're the most powerful, we'll last here, we'll be here forever. But as one empire fades, another one comes into power. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast. Again, kind of 
counterfeiting the work of the Holy Spirit, of making the, the first beast, the powers of the world, seem believable, plausible, as if giving your life to them, that that's the best way to receive life. And again, put yourself in the first century context where if you weren't a part of worshiping the emperor, you were often excluded from the economic transactions of the time, and often your family would go hungry because you could not participate in the regular functionings of culture and the town around you. So that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Again, that seems to be referencing Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody needs to worship this beast and, every, and anyone who doesn't is going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. It doesn't mean that every last person who didn't worship the image in Daniel's day was, was killed, but certainly Nebuchadnezzar had the power to do that. And he specifically did that for three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, even in the towns in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you find... Various degrees of persecution, various degrees to which emperor worship was enforced, various degrees to which people lost their lives if they refused to acknowledge that the emperor was a divine being. Down to verse 16 and 17, it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The background from that seems to be coming out of Exodus chapter 13, verse 9. Uh, when God brought the people out of Egypt, here's what he says in Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, about an observance, about a ceremony they will continue to do. Here's what he says. This observance, this ceremony, will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And so in the Old Testament, the sign on the forehead and on the hand was this, was this spiritual marker this reminder that God delivered them from the land of Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. The head seems to represent ideological commitment. The hand, the practical outworking of what that commitment looks like. So the head and the hand, sort of your, your sense of well-being that comes from the mind, as well as the hand, the practical outworking of what that looks like. Verse 18 this calls for wisdom. Notice it doesn't say it calls for cleverness. It calls for wisdom. The power of the first beast called for patient endurance. It's because the outworking of the governmental powers was more overt. This is more soft power. It calls for wisdom. In other words, it's not going to be as clear. We'll get into this in just a second. Let the number who has let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. When it says a number of a man, um, probably could actually better be translated simply the number of man. Uh, there is no specific article there. It's not the man. It's not necessarily a man. It's probably the number of man. The number is 666. Remember, again, this is in the context of counterfeiting. In Revelation chapter 13, 1, there's blasphemous names that are written on the beast, counterfeiting the name on Christ. There's blasphemous, there's blasphemous names that the beast is the ruler of the world, when in reality, Christ is the ruler of the world. Some people would say the 666 is a gematria, uh, which which in ancient days, they, uh, a numerical value would be assigned to various letters of the alphabet. And so there's ways which assigning numerical values to the letters of, of Nero and Caesar can actually work out to 666. It could be an, a, that might have some influence here. That might be partly what's going on. My sense is, and the, of course, when I say my sense is, uh, their commentators are read, and more likely, it seems, that 666, remember, seven is the number of completeness. Seven is the number of fullness. And so six is not quite seven. And the fact that there's three of them essentially means that this is 100, 
100% incomplete, compl- it's 100% complete incompleteness. There's three sixes, and so because it's three, it means it's complete, but each number is only six rather than seven, meaning it's entirely incomplete. And so 666 seems to be the idea that humanity is 100% complete and they're 100% incompleteness of who God wants them to be. That we're one, we 100% fall short of God's glory. We 100% fall short of who he is. Nancy Guthrie says this, the mark is not a chip implanted in a person's body. It's about their internal character and commitments being lived out in such a way that they are marked by them. And what becomes obvious is that there is no love for Christ, no pursuit of holiness. There's only love for self and a pursuit of everything this world has to offer. Every person who has ever, listen to this, every person who has ever lived is marked one way or another. Either we are marked by our belonging and allegiance to Christ, or we are marked by our belonging and allegiance to his imitator, his counterfeit, the beast. We would like to think that there is some sort of middle ground, a way of neutrality for nice but unconvinced people, but there just isn't. Listen, friends, this is true. You are marked one way or another. You are either marked and sealed by God as belonging to him, sealed by the Holy Spirit, part of his redeemed community. You are either marked that way, and your head, your being, the hands, the outworking of what you do belongs to the person of God, or you are marked by the beast. Sometimes they actually wish it were as simple as some sort of physical mark on your hand and forehead. Wouldn't that make it so much easier? And sometimes I wonder that whether or not we get so fixated on that mark that we actually lose the point of the text, that whether or not there's a physical mark there, every single person, you're spiritually marked. You're either marked by the ownership of the beast, by the influence of evil, by the influence of this world's powers, or you're marked and sealed by the person of Christ. Let me just give you a couple. I was going to draw these. I don't think I will. Let me just give you a couple of ways that the systems of this world often sort of deceive us. Our world, our world system deceives us into thinking that pleasure equals rest. Let me ask you a question. We live in a culture, we live in a world where there's lots of pleasure. Are we at rest? Now, like a, a mark of the beast, a, de- a mark of the beast deception is that lots of pressure, pleasure will bring your soul rest. It won't. The mark of the beast is that lots of money will bring you a flourishing life. How's that working for us? That's a mark of the beast. That lots of possessions, lots of money will cause you to have a, a flourishing person, a flourishing sense of your being. A mark of the beast is that information, lots of data input, lots of information will lead to wisdom. It's a mark of the beast. Information does not lead to wisdom. A mark of the beast is that autonomy, self-determination will bring you freedom of soul and freedom of being. That's a deception of our world. That's a deception of the beast. A mark of the beast is that affluence will bring you fullness. That status will bring you well-being. All of those are marks of the beast. I'm going to ask Dennis to come up, and he's going to read Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Uh, We'll plow through some of this. Uh, He's just going to read the first 14 verses because the uh, second part of 14, he'll he'll be back for that. Uh, They're really intense. So Dennis, uh, read us uh, 14, 1 through 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had 
been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to the God to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord and from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Thank you, Dennis. We'll move through this fairly quickly. Verse 1, then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on the Mount Zion. A Mount Zion is often a picture of the presence of God that is ultimate fulfillment when God dwells with his people on earth. And with him, 144,000, what his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, once again, marked by the person of Christ. 144,000, remember we looked at that a number of weeks ago, uh, seems to be an expression of all of God's people. One of the things that you find when you find the 144,000 in the early, I think it's uh, Revelation 6 or 7, is that uh, it actually comes across as a census counting. Uh, remember, we said that there are 12 tribes, and so 12 times 12 is 144 times 1,000, meaning all of God's people uh, that had their origin in the people of Israel. Ultimately, Jesus was born from the people of Israel, and now the people of God that belong to Christ. But when you look at that earlier census, the 144,000, uh, it comes across not only the large, great multitude, but also as a, a kind of a military census. That's important for what follows. Notice again, you're marked with someone's glory. Uh, verse 3, and they sang a new song. Uh, the new song seems to reference back when the people of Israel left the land of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 15, they sing a song of deliverance. So this is a song of deliverance before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Again, this is the great multitude or the 144,000, all of God's people singing of deliverance. They sing the song and worship the lamb while others worship the beast. That flushes out what we find in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. Doesn't mean that sexuality is bad. Often throughout Scripture, what you find is that uh, spiritual adultery is connected to sexual adultery. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says to the people that he's talking to, the people in Corinth, he says, I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. And so this is not about the badness of sexuality. God created that. What it is talking about in a military context it was generally, again, we said it was a census. It was only men who served in the military. It's utter devotion to their military cause. This is the undiluted faithfulness of those devoted to God who belong to him. Obviously, 
as followers of Jesus, male and female. But in ancient times, again, in the background of a census, was portraying the purity and beauty of the church given to Christ as a pure bride for him. Verse 4 and 5, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. Uh, uh, they are blameless. In verse 6, we have another angel flying about. He brings an eternal gospel. Uh, part of that gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but also the fact that judgment is coming. If you ever see a news story where the solving of a crime is being pursued and people are brought into years, and maybe it's been a long-term case, maybe it's been 10 years, and finally, the wrongful person, the person who committed a crime, is finally convicted. What happens? There's jubilation on the part of those who were offended. There's a sense of justice finally being delivered. They, they say the justice system has finally worked. And there's expression of joy that righteousness has won and that which is evil has been found out and been dealt with. That's exactly what's going on here. The sense of relief. Part of the good news of the gospel is that evil would be dealt with. Verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. There's more detail on that coming later on in a few chapters in Revelation, so we'll wait till there to, to dive into that. But the maddening wine is sort of this idea of that the more they imbibe sort of the cultural ethos around them, the more they even become immune to even what's happening, the more their defenses sort of relax and they just sort of imbibe whatever is presented to them. Uh, verses 9 and 10, the third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead and on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength. Often in that time, uh, wine was diluted. This is full strength into the cup of his wrath. This is the absolute 100% bringing to justice all that is evil in the world. Verses 10 and 11, they will be tormented with burning sulfur, reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment on them, and the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Listen, friends, this is hard stuff. I don't understand all of this, but what it can tell you is, this, is simply this. Remember, I think it was last week we looked at the verse that God will bring destruction on those who destroy the earth. God is not simply out of control angry, but God is bringing righteous judgment, righteous justice on those who have destroyed, on those who have violated his creation, even violated themselves being made in the image of God. Look at verse 11. There will be no rest. Interesting that that's a portrayal of what this suffering and torment looks like. There's a restlessness to it. There'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. One of the reasons why we gather together is to spur one another on to faithfulness. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Write this, blessed are those who, are, who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. Listen, friends, if you are united to Christ in faith, when you die, you will die in Christ. But if you're going to die in Christ, the point is we're to be living in Christ now. And notice it talks about the fact that our deeds will follow us. Our deeds, that which we do, is an outward expression of living in Christ. Yes, deeds don't make us right with God, but deeds are an expression of our inward relationship with Christ. They're an expression of us being united to Christ in faith. 
I'm going to ask Dennis to come up and close it out, uh, reading Revelation chapter 14, uh, verses 15 through the end. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a, like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still, another angel who had charge who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Friends, this is a picture of just the severity of God's judgment. First, there's a harvest done with a sickle of wheat. Verse 16, so he was seated on the, throne, on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Jesus talks about a harvest in Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, that the earth will one day be harvested. Those who are followers of Jesus unite to him in faith, as well as those who are the unrighteous. And the second harvest is one of grapes with a particular focus on those who are not united to Christ. Verse 8, 19, the angel swung a sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Verse 20, they were trampled in the winepress outside the city. Notice it's outside the city, outside the place of, of God's dwelling, outside of his presence. And the blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Just this is designed to be a picture of absolute 100% horrific destruction of that which is evil. The 1,600 stadia, best we can possibly tell is, remember we said four is sort of symbolic of the four corners of the earth. Ten is a number that symbolizes comprehensiveness, Kind of the best that we can do is probably 4 times 4 times 10 times 10. A 1,600 stadia is about 180 miles. That's also the length of the promised land, the land of Palestine. Seems to be this just graphic portrayal of the horror of God's judgment. Listen, friends. When God judges, unrighteousness will totally be removed from this earth. And it's only through his blood that we can be made righteous. We're going to celebrate communing us, Sam, to come out. And as we get ready for communion, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. Here's what he says. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Listen, friends, here's the deal. The cup of God's wrath and judgment is absolutely real. God would not be righteous, loving, or just. God would not be beautiful, good, and true if he would not judge. Something must be done with evil in our world. Something must be done about human beings who have violated 
the beauty of who God created them to be. Something must be done. And there's two options. You either drink of the wrath of God yourself and experience eternal torment or you receive the gift of Jesus drinking the wrath of God on your behalf. It's the only two options there are. You either drink the cup of God's wrath and it's eternal torment or you drink the cup of communion which is symbolic of Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath on the cross it's what communion is about when we drink the cup when we eat the bread we do so in remembrance that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so you wouldn't have to. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink the cup of his fellowship. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you could drink the cup of communion with the Father. So we're going to release this in groups. You can take a cup of juice and a wafer back to your seat. And as you do, carry that cup meaningfully. If you're united to Christ in faith, you're welcome to do this with us. It's not important that you be a member here at Southridge. Like this section, this section, you guys can get up, go to one of the stations. Uh, they're all gluten-free, by the way, the crackers. Um, balcony, you guys can go. There's two stations in front of the balcony. Take a cup of juice, a wafer back to your seat. And as you carry the cup, friends, you're doing it as an expression of faith that Jesus drank God's wrath for you. The other sections can go. Once again, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. This is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The will of the Father, the will of the Son, was for the Son to drink the cup for you. He drank every last ounce of God's wrath against evil. Some of the Old Testament languages, he drank it to the dregs. That means every last piece of sediment at the bottom. Jesus 100% drank the wrath of God so that you could eat the bread and drink the cup of fellowship and communion. Let's eat the bread and drink the cup together. I'm going to ask you to stand for our closing song about the blood of Jesus. Let's sing this together.
God, we're thankful that you're righteous, God. You're a good God. You're a loving, truthful, and beautiful God. And because you are that, you must stand as judge. But thank you that you took divine judgment on yourself, that you drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of communion. We thank you for your blood that washes us clean. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. God blessed. God blessed. Go cleansed in the blood of the Lamb.